ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. It's another Wednesday on Hard in the Paint, and that just means one thing, the Dome Patrol. And I welcome back my friend, my brother, my colleague, the one and only Ross Jackson. Ross, we're going to get right into this, but first tell people how you're doing today, and uh, let's do our thing. Yeah, man. No, I'm excited to be here with you, as always, doing very well. Um, excited to uh, get uh, get a little bit of a holiday tomorrow, just a little bit of rest. One day. like that. One, one day. day. <laughs> That's all we get, man. I would take it though. You better believe it. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. Just some time with the the family, i.e. the fiance and the dog and myself. That's it. <laughs> Keep it nice and safe. Um, and that's it, man. How about you, brother? How you doing? We finally got the final approval on the loan for the house. Hey, so congratulations. So we're signing the paperwork on Monday. So I will officially be a homeowner. Hey, as a black Monday. man getting a loan out here. Look at you. <laughs> Look at you. Did you wear the Sunday best? <laughs> I sent my wife. I sent my wife. The loan of people have never seen me. They have never met me. Oh, that's smart. You know what I'm saying? Like, they yeah. have not looked at me. They don't like, no, nothing, nothing. They know nothing about me other than my name and the assets that I brought to the table. I love it. That's love all it. they know. I said, I ain't messing this up for us at all. <laughs> you know, they're going to be real mad when they realize that line should have been read. <laughs> Wait until I move in now. It's gonna when they start hearing some funk in the morning and like my daughter's damn, always already damn, like, let's put damn. a movie theater in the, in the backyard, daddy. I said, yeah. Damn. Hey. We'll do it, and we're gonna be watching Shaft, and we're gonna be watching. Watching- <laughs> 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 so I'm, I'm ready for that, though. I love it, um, Congratulations. So it's just, yeah, I'm just worried. My mom is going out to California Oof. to be with my my brother and my sister. She hasn't seen them in like almost two years. Yeah, yeah. So she's going up there. But I talked to her yesterday. We went through the whole breakdown. I said, Mom, you got the shield? Yep. She's like, I got the shield. I said, you got Hell the face yeah. mask? She said, I got the face mask plus the plastic um, piece yep. that keeps it away from my mouth. I said, you got gloves? She said, I got gloves. I said, Mom, you know, you wearing long sleeves? She said, yes, I'm wearing long sleeves. I said, you know, you got a seat between you and the next one? Yes, that's sweet. <laughs> so we went down the whole thing. She's like, I'm not eating before I get on the plane. I'm not drinking anything. Yeah, yeah. And it's a direct flight from New Orleans to L.A. So I said, good. No change in flights. You just get there take a shower <laughs> that's it yeah absolutely and then she's already then she comes back and she's like i gotta do a 10-day self-quarantine when i get back yep. and i'm like yeah you do yeah so, especially coming from back, back out here man like it's it's wild out here so best of luck most you know nothing but safety and love to her i'm sure she'll be fine but i know, you know she's but taking the just, precautions she's yeah, taking the like, precautions my, so. my mom will not play she will just- get that- <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't don't get close to her. Do not mm-hmm. do not run up on her. You know she ain't trying to hit her these days. She, she, if you meet her, you'll think she's the most dignified, classy person you ever met. But if you right. piss her off, that Birmingham comes out of her. Man, right? that six foot broomstick come out real quick. 
Hey, my mom's <laughs> is not one to be trifled with. <laughs> All right, but let's get into what folks want to hear us talk about. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. The New Orleans Saints. And we have to start with the, the or look back at the Saints and the Falcons. A great win um, for the team. And the first story, nobody's going to let us avoid this, is Taysom Hill. Yeah. So first, I'm going to yeah. let you handle the hot takes because I think you are, the instant reactions are always – the the most interesting right and people are ready to anoint after one man <laughs> people are ready to go They're like, all right well that's great we got the new heir apparent here look I- i'll tell you this and, and and you and i talked about this last week this one game is not going to make the decision about who becomes the heir apparent after drew Brees, and that's the conversation between Taysom hill and Jameis winston it's also the conversation between Jameis hill and Tay- oh i did it Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston or somebody else. Um, it, it, it does, however, solidify him in the conversation. It means that he's no longer an afterthought to that conversation for this week. We have to see exactly what he looks like up against. I assume he'll get the start again against the Denver Broncos. I, I don't see any reason not to give him the start right. there based on what you saw from him. He proved to be what I called a Teddy Bridgewater-esque solution at quarterback this week in that he didn't lose you the game but he also added a little something extra to the team. I broke down over at Canal Street Chronicles what his performance was like this week. He did a lot of things over this past week. He did a lot of things that maintained the offense and the comfort of the offense, basically what everybody on that offensive side is familiar with. He took 14 of his 30 dropback snaps under center. He completed over 78% of his passes. He was very efficient in his, in his uh, throw selection. He threw quickly 2.48 seconds per throw was his average, which isn't far a far venture at all from Drew Brees' average on the season, which was 2.46. You saw him not push the ball down the field too terribly much. He took advantage of some deep shots when he got the opportunity. He was a little late on one. Yeah, which is accuracy the, you know, on the deep ball has been yeah. something for Taysom. His whole – every time we've seen him go deep, it's, yeah. it's a little bit of an underthrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, it's too much air. That's the thing it seems with Taysom when he throws a deep ball is a lot of air underneath that ball. Yeah, he really tries to give you that Russell Wilson drop it in the bucket rainbow art kind of thing where don't really need that. Like if he flattens out the angle a little bit and throws or flattens out the parabola a little bit and throws earlier – then those passes are all right on time. That's the other part of it. I talked to my boy, Andrew Bell, who's over at Canal Street Chronicles, and I think he described it really well, and I want to make sure I give him credit for it. But he described it really well that it's not necessarily that when he sees the open pass that he's throwing it late, it's that the other progressions before he sees the open pass, he's a little bit long, Mm -hmm. long, yeah, a little bit slow, thank you, in processing and getting through the reads the way that Drew Brees does. So he gets to that open pass or a little bit late, right, the late developing route, and because of that, those throws tend to get underthrown a bit. Now, some of it does have to do with reps. Some of it has to do with game time, play time, understanding the speed of the game, things like that, of course. Some of it has to do with arm strength. I think he's still learning the limits of what he's used to being able to do in college versus what he's doing right now. There's a bit of a venture in between that in terms of the longevity of playing through a full rhythm of a game. But there's also just simply the fact that if he throws he turned around and essentially fielded it like a punt in that one. Uh, Taysom's leg did get hit. I know Nick Underhill pointed that out, but it's yes. still, like you said, like the parabola and the arc is just really, it's still a steep climb and a steep drop so far mm-hmm. with those. And I think that, you know, with reps, with timing, with experience, with comfort, all of that stuff, 
those are all things that will get better. So, you know, you saw him push the ball deep, but still his average intended air yards per pass, because everybody loves some air yards, 6.3 yards per pass in intended air yards. That's not, you know, he didn't push the ball to no, the point where fantastic, they were fantastic, the, but it's yeah, not. It, he maintained the offense. He maintained the offense the way that a Drew Brees offense would usually run without doing anything that put anybody in a place of discomfort or unfamiliarity. He added some things, right? 43.3% of his dropbacks were play action. And that that's something that we talked about is huge. that yep. either whether it was going to be Jameis or Taysom is that we expected to see more play action because they are more athletic, because it yes. takes less time for them to get back up and they have the height to see over the D line. Yep. Whereas Brees is has to have that advantage of that extra second that the play action does not give him yep of being able to make that read and get it out as quickly as he likes yeah and you also see with a lot of those play action passes there were two play action passes out of the 12 that maintain or 12 play action reps mm-hmm. that didn't get called back by penalty one of them got called back but on two of them they were five step drops the other 10 were all seven step drops and that's the other part too is that that seven step drop takes you further back behind the line of scrimmage. So that's further you have to also throw. So there's a lot of different factors that go into why Drew Brees doesn't run the play action. I mean, you look at it right now over the last, I have the numbers here, over the last four games, Drew Brees' play action percentage has been 16.2%, 14%, 15.2%. Jameis Winston in just this first, in that second half that he played against San Francisco was at 30.8% of his snaps being in in, in play action. And then 43.3 for Taysom Hill, which I think is the highest that we've seen a game percentage probably since 2017, 2016 for a quarterback in a Saints uniform. And then let's also give Taysom credit against the blitz. Because we know when you're a rookie, that's what teams are going to send at you is a ton of blitz in your first start. And he only had one incompletion against the blitz, um, which is, A, even if the distance, it means you're not taking sacks and you're not throwing picks. And that to me, you know, that's what we we wanted to see out of Taysom. Yes, he did fumble, but overall, I think we were both more worried about his uh, potential to throw interceptions. Right. Because we knew the fumbling thing is something that he's had a problem with this year. Mm -hmm. But the interceptions were what we were worried about, and he didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. And you'll take a, you know, if if your high variance comes down to, rushing touchdowns and fumbles you'll take the rushing touchdowns and, and you're totally fine with that he also under pressure which you know goes it was a bit more beyond the just the blitz to 118.8 pass rating under pressure that was the third best in the nfl this week so he 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 managed really well i mean he managed the game really well while also a couple of additional elements the play action element that we just talked about and then him being able to create on his feet one of the big things that i was concerned about was if he would have a propensity to run when he didn't need to i think he chose too often to run i think the 10 attempts the way that they worked out were too many like the way that they came here's the interesting thing about that though only four of those 10 attempts weren't designed runs right that was right. and the and the and five of the six designed runs that he had that were called by Sean Payton all came in the fourth quarter, including that fumble at the end. So I agree that maybe the run percentage was too much, or his his carries were too much. But I don't put that on Taysom Hill as much as I put that on the on the play calls because he only scrambled four times in this game. And in fact, there were probably a couple of times where he could have scrambled either earlier or more to create some, some more yardage. And that's but I reps. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And but I like that for Taysom Hill, that he didn't try to force that to be a part of his game. He allowed that to be a secondary part of his game outside of what was specifically called for him. So I credit Taysom Hill for that, but I echo your, your concern with the amount of runs and the, and the percentage of runs via the play calling. 
Um, I give credit to the run game again. The run game mm-hmm. did its job. Um, but uh, there's one thing that I wanted to go back to as well. Yeah. And last week we talked about this. And I think this influenced the Taysom Hill decision as well in, in hindsight. The, the lack of familiarity is one thing that we really talked about is that you didn't have tape of Jameis in the right. Saints system. Well, you also didn't have any tape of, of um, Taysom Hill in running a full game. So right. Sean Payton, I think, took advantage of that against a team that has an okay defense. Mm-hmm. And you allow him to get his first start where there's no a division rival who's coming yep. in kind of wounded, and you take advantage of that. And uh, and I think these two games, as, and we'll get into Denver in a moment, mm-hmm. but teams who have average defenses and are unfamiliar with this guy, yep. yeah, if you're going to test it, this is the cauldron in this which you do time the to, test. Yeah, this is definitely the time to do it. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, the Saints won the battle of familiarity in that game all told because while Atlanta may not have been familiar with what New Orleans would look like, New Orleans was absolutely familiar with what – uh, with what Atlanta would look like. And that's why they were able to do what they did specifically over on the defensive side as well. Didn't allow a touchdown in this game, only one red zone possession that ended in a field goal. Uh, they only converted, I think it was two third downs in this game. They possessed the ball, you know, far less than New Orleans did. New Orleans won the battle of time and possession again. And the Saints just did a really good job at limiting everything that Atlanta had to throw at them. They took away the short and intermediate area of the field. I'm getting into the defense a little bit, but yeah, you know, we'll took away the short. Yeah, but you know, they took away everything from Matt Ryan, forcing him to hold on to the ball. And that's how the Saints ended up being able to be so dominant on the defensive side, which we'll 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 talk more about when we get to it. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the battle of familiarity, the Saints definitely had a, a you know the big advantage of this one. And then Mike Thomas. Mm-hmm. Has has his first hundred yard game since coming back, um, and he looked he looked like himself. Um, yeah. And I think the Saints did a fantastic job of creating opportunities for him. Um, and we we talked about that, you know, getting him settled in. Uh, and, and I think the Saints did that throughout the game. You saw them intentionally make plays for certain people, and also to make it easier for Taysom. There were yep. they were a lot of simpler reads. And I'm not saying that, to, again, not to downplay anything Taysom did. This is what you do for rookie quarterbacks. You make right. sure that they are given the simplest reads possible. But with the Saints' talent, those simple reads turn into good plays. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the big thing is that, you know, if you can just get the ball in one of these receivers' hands, either they'll make something happen with it or you're going to continue to move the ball down the field. One of the other things that we saw from Taysom that he did really well is he might have had, you know, a big air yardage, the biggest air yardage completion for the Saints since 2017 at 53 plus yards. He had a couple of others around 19, 20 yards or so, plus the plus the yardage after or behind the line of scrimmage. But you know, he also threw seven passes behind the line of scrimmage too, because he got the ball in the hands of his playmakers. A couple of those went to Deontay Harris. A couple of those went to Emmanuel Sanders. A couple of those big plays came from Latavius Murray in the passing yep. game. Alvin Kamara didn't catch a pass for the first time in his career in a game. Uh, and he didn't need to. <laughs> that was the other thing is he didn't need to. Like the, the North South run game and then Latavius Murray style was so perfect for this offense this week that that's who they went with. That's one of the things that I love about Sean Payton and the Saints offense is that he's not precious. He's not going to get to what we've seen Michael Thomas not be a huge part of games uh, since he returned from his injury and even before you know the first game of the season. We saw them lean on whoever it was that was going to give them the best opportunity to take advantage of mismatches, to take advantage of matchups. So you saw Adam Troutman get involved. You saw Michael Thomas get involved in this game. And I, you know, look, I think that 
I, I was talking to RP3 this morning over at 103.7, and he was like, "Do you?" And he asked me, "Do you think that that was by design, or is that Taysom Hill going to Michael Thomas because that's who he's most comfortable with?" And I think it's both. I mean, Sean Payton, we've talked about it before. Sean Payton and the way that this New Orleans offense or the way that this New Orleans team works is that they're going to put you in the situation to do what it is that you're most comfortable with and that you do well. Your role is developed by what you do well. And if Taysom Hill is going to come into this game and be most comfortable with Michael Thomas close to the line of scrimmage and most comfortable with Emmanuel Sanders down the field, that's what they're going to scheme up. That's what they're going to do. That's why you saw them on the same side of the field so often in this game, because then Taysom only had to read one side of the field. And even if they didn't line up on one side, the routes took them to one side, often to the left side of the offense. And they made it simple for him. They simplified the offense and allowed him to be able to do what he did at a highly efficient and effective level. And when you have a wide receiver like Michael Thomas, like I told RP3, you could put my granny out there and she'll throw the ball to Michael Thomas and they'll probably win a game. Like it's, you know. and, and, and it only makes sense. Michael Thomas is the constant for Taysom Hill right. when he has taken reps, when he's yeah. gotten first team reps. Over the years, as at receiver, who has he been with the longest? Yep. So he knows Mike Thomas's routes. He's been yep. throwing those routes. And then, you know, as being a lefty as well, like you said, to yep. the ability to get him on that side where Thomas lines up consistently mm-hmm. and knowing that if you do roll Taysom to the left, if the play is to the left, if it breaks down and both of those guys can scramble, uh, yep. you know, we talked about this last week as well, scramble drills when Taysom breaks contain – that gives Taysom opportunities to get upfield and, and use his legs. Yep. And, and the other part is we set the number last yep. week between 23 <laughs> and 26. Yep. We said 23 and 26, they'll win. Yep. And that's what they put up. You know, it's, they're right there. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, that's where they, as long as he can do that, yep. as long, it doesn't need to be 35. It doesn't need to be 40, Mm-mm. you know, plus points. 27 23 to 27, I think with this defense right now, and let's get, we'll transition to that with this yeah. defense right now is plenty. Yeah, absolutely. And let me say one, one quick thing too about Michael, uh, excuse me, uh, Taysom Hill and his chemistry with the receivers. This is actually something Lance Moore told one of our writers over at Cal Street Chronicles, as well as another group that he was talking with. Uh, Lance Moore mentioned that the other benefit to Taysom Hill is that he has been in the wide receiver room with these guys. Yep. He speaks the language. He knows the lingo. He knows what the guys like to do. He knows how to work with them and be a part of them. And then therefore knows what to look for from them and where to put the ball for them. You could say the same thing about the tight end room. Adam Troutman ran the route that we've been waiting for all season, because I don't know if you saw the route that he ran on Jeremy Chin during the senior bowl last mm-hmm. year, but he embarrassed that man and we were looking for that to happen at some point and he actually embarrassed that it wasn't Deion Jones or Foy it was one of the other linebackers for uh for Atlanta but it was a hell of a route and you know those are the guys that he has communication with Jared Cook continues to sort of fall out of this offense a little bit too his snaps are dropping because they're not using him in the run game that's why the snaps are dropping and so he's only getting out there for the you know for these passing reps but he also helped convert a third down in the red zone and so you know he's comfortable with all of these guys so that's something else that I want to point out that Lance Moore gave us that's I think is really interesting in terms of how he's able to communicate and trust these guys in the receiver room as well as in the tight end room because he's literally been in the room with them for the past what three years at this point yeah yeah, absolutely. So moving to the defense, the defense to me is still the main story for this mm-hmm. team. Um, and it starts with the D-line. Pressure, 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 pressure. 32 sacks now this season. Four players on the roster with at least four sacks. Let's start right there. Um, yeah. And just how great that they played. David Onyemata, 
killing it. Uh, you know, the Trey Hendricks, yeah. obviously Cam Jordan looked really good against Atlanta as he always does. Um, and, and just up and down the line, it's hard to find somebody who didn't have a contribution on Sunday. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's nowhere that you really look on that defense on Sunday and say, well, you know, this person didn't really show up. <laughs> um, you know, they, they had to play this game without Marshawn Lattimore, their starting corner yep. as well. And that was with Julio Jones coming back into the line. Now Julio Jones was in and, and out Calvin with a hamstring injury. Yep. And then you had Calvin Ridley there and Calvin Ridley so far this season has been at his absolute best when Julio Jones was back in the lineup. That's when he really mm-hmm. performs because, you know, safety coverage, safety help, goes over to Julio Jones. Julio Jones demands so much attention and rightfully so. But Calvin Ridley ends up with five catches in this game. Yeah, he did have 90 yards, but he ended up with five catches in this game going up against uh, uh, Janoris Jenkins. None of those targets, you know, not many of those targets went his way. And so I think that that's one of the big things is we talk about the Saints defense getting better and better and better. And oftentimes we kind of neglect talking about the contribution of Janoris Jenkins and just having that formidable, viable number two cornerback over on the opposite side to where you can put a guy like Patrick Robinson, who has performed extremely well this season in place of Marshall Lattimore and the opportunities he's gotten. Julio Jones, two catches on two targets for 39 yards. Again, on and off the field dealing with injury, but just a great performance by those guys. And, and again, I mentioned them taking away the middle of the field. A lot of that has to do with both of those corners on the perimeter, as well as the linebacker in the middle, in particular, Quan Alexander, who was added because Demario Davis now has just been freed up to kind of just get after the quarterback and, and play in the run game. I mean, he's playing close to the line of scrimmage, just like CJ Gardner, Johnson and Malcolm Jenkins mm-hmm. have been Quan Alexander's freed up so much in this, uh, freed up a ton for this defense and his ability to help take away the middle of the field or free up other players to take away the, the, the middle of the field allows the secondary to focus on what it can create deep. And that's where you're seeing the secondary and this defense really work in a symbiotic relationship because once that defense is effective deep, which it has been the past few weeks, it allows the pass rush to get home as well. Yeah. You can't say enough about Quan Alexander because he's, he walked in the door made himself a part of this team, embraced it from the moment he sat, you know, stepped foot off the airplane. And <laughs> he and Demario Davis, it's clear they're best friends on the field. 100%. I don't know what their relationship is like yet <laughs> on the field. I can't say to that. Right. But on the field, you can tell that Demario Davis is like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't have to run all over this. I can do this now again. Right. What made me a, a pro bowler, I can do that again. Yep. Thank you, Quan. And Quan yeah. is just out there, let me go hit people, man. Yeah. Let me go hit people. And he's- right. He's trying. It's all he wants, man. He's head on fire all the time, but he's athletic enough to get it done, man. He's been he's been a, a, exceptional for the Saints. And I'll show you, too, there's, there's a way to quantify the success that he's brought to the Saints. If you look at before the Quan Alexander trade, sorry, I have to read this, but mm-hmm. uh, if you look at before the Quan Alexander trade, that's uh, weeks one through nine of the season. The average NFL pass rating allowed between the numbers and within 15 yards of the line of scrimmage, so basically the short middle of the field, mm-hmm. was 102. The Saints were five points higher than that at 107. That's considerable. And then you look at after they got Quan, so weeks 10 and 11, that average has dropped for the Saints from 107 to 46. It's insane. <laughs> and then and then to take it even further, you look at third down, right? Uh, third down for the Saints. And of course, it's a small sample size. It's only two games. So there is some context we had there. But still, that's a humongous, humongous improvement. You look at the pass rating allowed in that same area of the field on third downs for the Saints. 8 of 12 for 104 yards over the short middle of the field in weeks one through nine. That was a 94 pass rating. 
since getting Quan Alexander, that pass rating has dropped to three. Single digit, three. One of three catches over the middle allowed, no touchdowns and an interception. Three. It's insane how quickly he he helped uh, the Saints defense. And again, he's not doing it all by himself. No, 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 no. Opening up the opportunities for other people to be able to do what they do in the middle of the field. And that's what you're looking for. It's always the sum of all the parts. And the Saints right. were missing that part in the yeah. linebacking core. And that was something going back to last year was finding that consistency opposite Demario Davis. And if Quan Alexander can stay healthy the rest of this year, that's an addition that could go down as like and we talked about this too. We said it was as big an addition potentially as um adding um why am I forgetting from last year? Why am I forgetting? Oh, this? when they brought in from last year? Janoris, when they brought oh, in Janoris. Janoris Jeez, like <laughs> see, I just mentioned we don't talk about yeah, Janoris Jenkins enough. Enough, yeah. Yes. So <laughs> it's that big. I mean, I I really believe that because I think it's taken the Saints from where we saw, like you said, in the first nine weeks, they were okay. They were right, okay. They exactly. had moments. Yeah. The last few weeks, even the week before Quan arrived, what we're seeing is consistency for yes. four quarters. And we're seeing consistent pressure. We're seeing, like I said, the secondary has stepped up, particularly also Malcolm Jenkins, who has gotten much better in yeah. the way that they've utilized him and his own production yeah. um, over the last month. Uh, they, they're gelled. And in my mind, they're the best defense in the NFC at this point. I know people still want to point to Chicago as they're the best defense maybe in the NFC, but I don't think anybody is more dynamic than the Saints right now. And considering what they continue to do against the running game, right, and then to have people have all these opportunities to throw against them and for them to still dominate in the passing game the way that they are with creating pressure right now, Mm-hmm. I think they're the best defense in the NFC. And the only two yeah. in the league that I would say are better than them are Pittsburgh and um, maybe, yeah. I'm thinking maybe Baltimore. You could probably, maybe. yeah, you could throw maybe uh, Baltimore or possibly Miami over these last yeah. couple of weeks in there. But Yeah. Um, so, I mean, but the Saints are right there now. And yeah. that's what we asked for. If they had a top five defense, and even if the offense was, and it's going to be top 10 no matter what when you have Sean Payton. Right. If it's top, but if you got a top five defense, that's what it takes to carry an older quarterback. I'm sorry, no, that's yeah, what no, it takes you're absolutely right in the NFL to carry an older quarterback to a championship. Yeah, you have you to have defense. an elite defense. Yeah, you need defense and you need depth, and so far they're showing you that they've got both. Absolutely. Um, are there? Uh, let's talk about um, PJ Williams. Uh, uh, PJ, uh, I'm sorry, uh, PJ. Um, why am I saying his name wrong? I'm having no one senior moments today. Uh, th- the third corner, Patrick Robinson. Oh, Patrick Jeez. Robinson. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying PJ. I'm thinking PJ, Patrick <laughs> Robinson. Let's talk about him, though. He has this year, you know, he, again, a guy who is a target for Saints mm-hmm. fans for a long time and a guy that just hadn't performed to maybe the level that people expected. What do you think has been different for him this season? You know, the, the one conclusion that I continue to draw with him, and I think a lot of people will look at him and they'll just be like, well, you know, he's just performing better. But you know what I think about when it comes to Patrick Robinson is that when the Saints signed him, they signed him as a slot corner coming off of his best season with the Philadelphia Eagles. He was rated as the top available per, 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 per pro football focus. They rated him as the top available corner, that uh, slot corner in that season. When the Saints signed him from Philadelphia, the player that made Patrick Robinson better was Malcolm Jenkins. Now, this season, I know it's not in the slot, 
but it's on the outside. We're seeing him perform very well in a defense that features Malcolm Jenkins. And I wonder, this is, uh, you know, I, I don't have any way to quantify this by watching film or anything like that, but I just wonder if the mentorship of Malcolm Jenkins is start, you were starting to see its effect with some of the guys that aren't even on the field all the time, right? PJ Williams getting on the field has performed very well in that safety, that sort of hybrid safety slot corner role that he's been playing or that safety box role that he's been playing. Um, uh, Patrick Robinson performing really well on the outside. And I think that no matter what, like if you have somebody that makes you better on the team, it doesn't matter where you play, right? It doesn't matter if you're playing in a slot or you're playing outside. But that's the big thing that stands out to me is that there's a consistency there. there there's something that is familiar for Patrick Robinson in terms of what made him better in Philadelphia and what's potentially making him better here in New Orleans. And I think that some of it just has to do with, you know, there's a big difference between having to carry and be the corner down in and down out game over game over game. Maybe he doesn't have the longevity for that, but he certainly has had the longevity to come in and perform at a high level when called upon when Marshawn Lattimore is out. And though we, we lamented the loss of Von Bell and, and, mm-hmm. and I think what you did add, like you said, the, the, the hope was you have to have leaders at all three levels. Right. So on the defensive line, Cam Jordan is the unquestioned leader there. On the yep. second level, it's Demario Davis. And in the secondary, you had a young group in, yep. of guys who were in their first five years in the league who, who amongst them, when most of them came in at the same time, mm-hmm. was going to be the leader. Well, now you have that leader, the guy yep. who's seen everything. You know, in this league. So when there are those times where guys may get flustered, when there are those times that they may see something that is unfamiliar, you have a person in the back of that backfield who can get you to regroup and it can say, this is what's going to go on. Here's where we need to be. Let's do that. And can communicate. And and for Dennis Allen to be able to talk directly to, you know, Malcolm Jenkins and Malcolm Jenkins be able to decipher that for everybody else. I think that, you know, we were worried about his age, but that element and the way that he's being utilized now, it shows the value. Yeah. And you've heard Dennis Allen say recently that, you know, he was struggling to figure out the appropriate way to use Malcolm Jenkins to the best of his abilities. Mm-hmm. Clearly he's figured it out. Um, and I bet that, is, that involved some conversation too. Oh, and Malcolm's getting back in there and saying, dude, look, let's try this. Yeah. And it's probably Malcolm going, look, bro, like, <laughs> like that ain't me. <laughs> this, this is what we got to do here. Let, let's talk. What if, what if this, you know what I mean? And that's, that's one of the things, I mean, you talked, um, um, I want to say it was, I want to say it was the young undrafted rookie corner, uh, Keith Washington out of out of West Virginia. If I remember correctly, talking before the season about how it doesn't matter how long anybody's been in the league, that everybody works with one another. And sometimes some of the younger guys are teaching the older guys something. Something, and a lot of times the older guys are teaching the younger guys something. And so you look at you know the way that that relationship works with the players. I imagine that relationship works the same way with the coaches. So if the players go to the coach and they say you know, this is what I feel like I could do better or this is, or what if we did X, Y, Z? I'm sure that conversation's entertained. It might not go over well with every coach, of course, but I imagine that that is entertained as a part of the culture that Sean Payton is trying to create. And so that relationship between coach, staff, and and player is something that's really important, even beyond just the player-to-player relationship. Yep, absolutely. Because if the, as long as the players feel like they have input, and it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't mean that there's always agreement Right. And coaches say, no, that's not how we're doing this this week. I see this. But at the very least, I like you said, I, 
certainly that's the hallmark of the Breeze Peyton relationship. Yes. Is yep. that give and take there. Um, and we've never seen a combative thing like we've seen with other quarterbacks and coaches where they go back and forth about calls on the sideline or making a bad play. Breeze and Peyton have always kept that inside. And I think that that's something that is the hallmark of communication that's built on Tuesday through Saturday. And right. I think the Saints have built a collaborative culture in that regard. I think that may be why Sean Payton cycled through so many defensive coordinators before settling on Dennis Allen, because those guys before were very set in how they did things. Rob Ryan is not going to be a collaborator. Steve Spagnuolo may not be the kind of collaborator that you're looking for, but it's clear that Dennis Allen, and however he communicates this message with his defense, we've not heard a single player over the stretch talk about they felt unprepared or they felt overmatched. And I think that that's a a testament to to Dennis Allen in that regard. Another guy who at the beginning I was skeptical of. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially because we were seeing, you know, this guy come in and, you know, take over this, this defense and try to make things incredibly complicated. His, his defense is not easy, but just like Sean Payton's offense isn't easy, but you learn to, you adapt to it. And once you get to the point where you're executing it, there's clear value in it. You know, nobody was saying Sean Payton needed to, you know, simplify his offense. <laughs> you know, it was just up to the players to to be, you know, it was up to the it was up to the players to be able to do that. And it was up to the scouting staffs, Terry Fontenot, exactly. Ireland, those guys, to find the people that were good fits, right? For for the offense that, that could implement quickly. And so it really is. And that's why I, I mentioned the staff relationship in there too, because it takes all of those pieces finding and identifying the appropriate talent in order for these guys to be able to come in. Like Quan Alexander coming in and picking up this defense in, in a week goes to show you just how easy, not, not easy, but like how workable it is to have a complex defense and be able to teach it to somebody that knows how to execute. Yep. It's, it's, it's it. all about acquisition and, 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 um, and identification. Understand your responsibilities. And that's right. always been the thing that Sean Payton has said, whether it goes back to his famous, do your job. Mm-hmm. It's, know you what you need to do that and just continue to do that complication only comes from lack of preparation yep and it's the complication is supposed to be for the other team that's who it's supposed to be for right it's not supposed (laughs) to be for you as a player you need to just do your job yeah and Um, you have you got guys that are so deep into their film study you know those guys that we mentioned before and cam jordan demario davis malcolm jenkins even janoris jenkins they're so deep into that film study so when you talk about preparation you get a lot of that just from from those guys. I had a, a conversation um, about different types of players, and I was talking about in every sport there are guys who are why guys and there uh-huh. are how guys. And the collaboration between the two, there are players who ask why. That's what they need to know. Why? Right. Why are we doing this this way? And it's not, it's not a combative thing. It's just how they no. process information. And there are guys in the room who are how guys tell me how to do it. Show me how to do it. And that's how I learn it. And I think right. that this, when you, that part of a locker room is very important for those guys to be able to communicate with each other. Cause the why guys need that extra perspective. And I think that's the saints have a well-rounded bunch of players like that. You can see that there are the more introspective players and mm-hmm. you can see that they're the more action oriented guys. And I think a team has to be made up of that. And I think that's, that's been the hallmark of the saints is just none of these guys are the same. You, right. they, they are similar in their motivations. They are similar in their expectations, 
but the, mm-hmm. that there's enough room. And, and I think that's a, great teams also have that is that character. There's enough room to be yourself within the Saints parameters that, that allows that growth of a team. If, the, if it was so rigid, as we've seen in other organizations, whether it was, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, what's, what's your dude, uh, who used to be, uh, Tom Coughlin, yeah. you have that kind of culture. That wouldn't work with this group. You know what I mean? No, like that, no. that, I can't see Alvin yeah. Kamara flourishing under a Tom Coughlin. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that that's, that's another hallmark of this team that makes it special and why people want to come and join the organization. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is something that is, that culture is so incredibly important to this team and you see it from everybody. I mean, you see the way this team celebrates when they win, you see the way that this team bands together when they lose, you see the way that this team bands together on the field. You saw Jameis Winston, you know, going nuts on the sideline every time Taysom Hill would, you know, complete a pass or when uh, Deontay Harris had that screen that he took down the sideline for 20 some odd yards. Like there was no animosity visible between, you know, the fact that, Jameis Winston didn't get the start and Taysom Hill did. There was no, you know, there were all those reports that broke right before the game, you know, the Sunday splash reports about, you know, Oh, some players in the, some players in the organization wanted thought Jameis should start. Some staff members thought that Jameis should start. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, of course, like people are going to have opinions. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Yeah. That. It wasn't like, Oh, <laughs> Taysom is starting. Right. Ooh, Taysom. No, right. it's guys who said, look, we think we, we've worked with Jameis. We like working with Jameis. They're probably offensive yeah. coaches said, Jameis allows us to do this. And Sean Payton said, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then everybody went, all right, bet. <laughs> and then did it. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's so funny reading those reports at, at, and, 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 and seeing the way that that affects people because, like, it doesn't mean anything. Like, I'm sorry. Like, every go to every team and find you'll find something like that. You know, every team believes that this person should be doing this instead of this or this person should be doing this instead of that person or whatever. Like, it's totally fine. But the most important thing for me when you talk about the, specifically the quarterback room, you talk about the culture and the way that they have, have, have really uh, fostered the culture there is the connection between Drew Brees and Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston and the way that unlike many other stories that we've heard around the NFL, we talk about Ben Roethlisberger, we talk about Brett Favre, these guys that didn't have any interest in mentoring their heir, right? Mentoring the person behind them. Drew Brees, very different in that aspect. And I think that comes from the relationship and the culture that he has built within the team and also that the staff has helped to support within the team. Yeah, I, I, I think Sean Payton expects it too. And, and, and it is a testament mm-hmm. to Brees because – as you said, we've seen that conversation time and time again. We saw Tom Brady right. ship quarterbacks out who right. were perceived as a threat to him. Anybody yep. that could potentially have taken any time from Tom Brady was shipped out immediately. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yep. what, was it? what was it? Yeah, in one year they got rid of Jimmy Garoppolo Jimmy. and Jacoby Brissett. Yep. And it was like, oh, okay, yep. oh, this is what you're doing? For All right. peanuts, too. <laughs> For peanuts, man. They were just like, we just have to get you out of here. We're sorry. Before like, we move, before we move on to some other topics, I do want to hit on Trey Hendrickson, who is tied for the NFL leading set. <laughs> man, dude's making eight hundred and twenty-five k this season. Is about to be a free agent. <laughs> with all the other free agents that is that we've been talking about for the sake, with all the money they have to invest coming up. Dang, if Trey Hendrickson ain't doing this at the right time. <laughs> Man, for real. He's going to make himself bank next season. And teams are going to be taking a risk. Teams are going to be taking a big risk on signing Trey Hendrickson to a big deal. And, and that's no disrespect to Trey Hendrickson at all. 
No disrespect at all. But you look at him as somebody that's going to have double-digit sacks this season, regardless of how you look at it. Nine and a half sacks is 10 sacks. He has been in on 10 sacks. Um, he, if he doesn't take a team-friendly deal, he's out of New Orleans Saint next season. Yeah. That's for sure. I think they feel like uh, they have enough depth on that D-line to replace him. 100%. And they've been so good at identifying that talent. Because you've also seen guys like Shai Tuttle stick on this team. Um, Taylor um, – uh, Tyler Davidson before he went to Atlanta, uh, Taylor Stallworth. I mean, they, they continue to do this. Hell, Porter Gustin's a starter as an undrafted free agent. And Cleveland, like, <laughs> like this is what they do. They'll be fine. But, you know, the, the big thing is that you, you do have to be careful as another, you know, as another team giving a contract to a guy that had six and a half sacks on his career and then turn around and got – 10 sacks in a season there's the Vic Beasley mirage you know uh, uh concern that that takes place was this just one good year at the right time however you watch Trey Hendrickson play and technically as a technical player his technical savvy is incredible he has a plan he knows what he's doing he's got a variety of moves he takes advantage of what the d- other defensive line players make available to him I mean he has done a good bit of that somebody did this great breakdown uh, that I saw John Sigler retweeted about quality of sacks. And mm-hmm. he's only got two covered sacks in the season, and he's got a couple of uh, cleanup sacks, as they call them, too. But, I mean, he's, he's been outstanding. But he's making himself some money, man. I mean, to be, to be having this production right now at $825,000 a season. I mean, and be right 25 now, years old. And be 25. Be, like, man. You're hitting the market for him, yeah. Somebody's going to overpay. 100%. Somebody's going to throw a ton of money at him, and it depends on whether he wants to stay in New Orleans or not. But I don't blame him if he goes and takes the money. But like oh. you said, I think you have to be very leery. You have to watch the film and understand the talent that he has around him. And if right. you don't put him in a situation, if you bring him in there and you think he's going to be your primary pass rusher right. on every day, you know, and be a, a, a guy who just terrorizes quarterbacks like a Bosa, then I think right. you're hurting yourself and you're misplaying yourself. Because, not, again, not to talk down on Trey Hendricks, but you have to take all of those things into consideration. And I don't know if one year proves that somebody's an elite pass rusher. He's having a great year, but I don't know if, if he's proven yet. You know, that takes time. That takes years. Yep. So even if I were trying to add pass rush, I'm not giving him $10 million a year or something like that. I'm not throwing that kind of money at him. It just it makes no sense. Right. Absolutely. And, and not to discredit him, obviously, like he's having a great season and everything, but you do have to have that caution and you have to have an understanding of your team's ability to continue to develop talent on the defensive line. The Saints turned Vince, Vince Beagle from a linebacker to an edge rusher that was marketable enough to trade for Kiko Alonso and then flip Kiko Alonso for Quan Alexander. Like this is not, you know, it's not to be taken lightly what the Saints do with talent on the defensive on on the defensive line and what they're able to do. Yeah, they turned Davro Lawrence into a into a draft pick. You know what I mean? Like this is what the Saints do. And unless you're a team like, I guess I'd say Pittsburgh, who has a proven ability to to develop players on the defensive side, you have to be careful about the investment that you place in a player that has had what could potentially be a mirage season. Uh, but if the Saints bring him back, he's likely to continue at least some level of that production because he's doing it in a place where he developed and has continued to develop him and will continue to support the, the talent around him and support and invest in his talent. Let's look at the position the Saints are in overall. Green Bay and Tampa Bay both lose. I think, again, for, for me, it validates all my thoughts on Tampa Bay. And you saw earlier mm-hmm. this week I tweeted out, 
they're two and four against teams 500 or better. And those two wins come against teams that beat the saints actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but we've seen a marketable diff um, uh, in their defense and offense against winning teams. They do yep. not score points against winning teams. They, they turn the ball over against winning teams. Tom Brady, 11 touchdowns, seven picks in those six games against winning teams. They are not suited for comebacks. Their running game is just dead. Yeah. And that defense has not shown that it can make a difference against quality teams. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, you know, the defensive side comes down to youth. The offensive side comes to limitation with exactly the opposite in a way. I mean, you see the teams that Tampa Bay has lost to Chicago, LA, New Orleans. What they've done is that they've taken away the middle of the field. Just like we were talking about with the game plan for the Atlanta Falcons. They take away the middle of the field. They play split safety out in the back. Now they're not always in cover two or cover four. They can roll down a corner. Uh, they can roll down one of those safeties into a robber, just like they did with uh, what's the guy's name. Um, I think it's Jordan, uh, Jordan Fuller, who got the two interceptions for yeah. LA on Monday yeah, night football. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what they did with him. And they rolled him down in that robber role and allowed him to make a play on the ball. That's what they do to him. And it confuses him, which is strange because you don't see that often from veteran quarterbacks. And that's not used. That's not what we're used to talking about. When it comes to Tom Brady, we're used to saying, well, Tom Brady's seen everything and, and therefore he's going to be fine. He said, but I think he's still kind of figuring out what the limitations of the offense are, despite the amount of talented names that are on the roster. And this was a big conversation for us talking about the Saints defense before the season began. It's like, okay, yeah, it's talented on paper, but can they go out there and perform? You're starting to learn that that has actually become more of a concern for this Tampa Bay offense than anything else. Cause you have all of these players, but if they're not, performing together then you know it's it's the uh, it's the 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 new the brooklyn net situation all over again i guess at that time brady's adjusted have- yards per attempt is the worst in the nfc south right it's the absolute worst yeah and it's gone down it's continued to go down his then from last year where people thought that was his worst season since maybe 2006 mm-hmm. and yeah he's you look at the yards per catch for guys like Mike Evans and for uh, uh, Chris Godwin. Chris Godwin. Mm-hmm. They're down. I mean, you saw it. Evans had, what, six catches for 48 yards? Right. And then you see Antonio Brown getting 13 targets <laughs> as the third receiver who's been there two weeks. Right. There's a problem there with that yeah. offense because I, I can't see Mike Evans and Godwin being very happy about the fact that they never get big plays anymore. Yeah, that's one of the things. Like this is a an offense. These are receivers that don't that don't perform in yards after catch. Now operating in, in in an offense that is predicated in yards after catch because of who your quarterback is. That's what New England was. At, you know, every year for the last five years or so, they were a yards after catch offense. This that's one of the reasons why they wouldn't got Antonio Brown because they were hoping that Antonio Brown could do things after the catch. This is not an offense that's predicated on that unless there's green grass ahead of them. Now you can watch you can watch Mike Evans fight through two you know secondary players at the goal line. I'll watch that all day because I thought that was an, a, a, a fantastic touchdown. But that's not going to do anything for you in the middle of the field. That's not going to do anything for you at the fifty yard line, right? That's a very very different situation, and I think that that's something that this offense is still struggling with is what is its identity and. And how does that identity support the players around Tom Brady as opposed to just Tom Brady? People have figured out if you limit the, the weapons around Tom Brady, 
he's going to struggle. He's going to struggle because he's not pushing the ball down the field. He's not doing any of those. The same, it's the same conversation we've had about Drew Brees, except the offense around Drew Brees is set up to support him. The offense in Tampa Bay right now is not. Drew Brees, I would say, um, Tom Brady right now, nine interceptions over his first 11 games. That's the most that he's thrown since 2011. He had uh, 12 interceptions in that season, if I remember correctly. And his career high is 14. This is something we've seen with Bruce Arians, too. His first year with quarterbacks, 18 interceptions for, uh, for Andrew Luck, 22 for Carson Palmer, 30 for Jameis Winston. You see the swell in the interception numbers the first year under Bruce Arians. And you're starting to see it here with Tom Brady as well. And it's absolutely a team not built to – if you get a deficit, and that's what we talked about with the Buccaneers both times the Saints played them, get up 10 early. If you get up 10, they're done because they will abandon the run and they can't run that effectively anyway. And Brady is not capable. If you have to go five, seven yards every time to go downfield, you can't come back that way. That's not how you no. how you get points uh, when you have a deficit. And I think that that's ultimately going to be the, the downfall of the of Tampa Bay for the Packers. It's their defense. Yes, their defense. big time. Yeah, big time. That's that's their big struggle right now. And look, I didn't believe in Indianapolis <laughs> at all this season. No, we no. Uh, for most that of it, like we saw crazy. The, that defense is really good. Julian Blackman is a hell of a player, man. But. You know, you just look at what they put together and you look at the stark contrast that we saw on the field on Sunday between these two defenses. And that was a defense, yes, that gave up in Indianapolis, that gave up 31 points, which are also going up against one of the best offenses in the NFL in Green Bay. Green Bay's defense gave up 34 points to one of the, you know, to a middle range offense at best in Indianapolis. And, you know, you had a couple of rookies back there making having huge days. Uh, uh, Jonathan Taylor, the running back out of Wisconsin that came in that the Saints were reportedly interested in at 23 for uh for this this past draft they ended up he ended up with what 90 rushing yards 24 receiving yards as well michael Pittman was a huge factor for them i mean this green bay defense has not been good at all and you had some turnovers on the offensive side which we see continue to happen and i'll say continue to become more of a pest for green bay's offense and so if you're giving it's it's the conversation we used to have about the Saints. If you're giving extra possessions to the team that you're going up against and the defense can't stop them, then your offense isn't helping either. So the rest of the, the AF, NFC, NFC South is down to two teams. And right. it's hard. And Tampa essentially is three games back of the Saints now. Right. Um, and then you look at the North, it's Green Bay or bust because mm-hmm. the Bears are not going to make the playoffs. It doesn't – I mean, they may just because somebody <laughs> has to. You know, right. I mean, they, but – and then the, the NFC West is too tight. Those teams are going to kill each other. Right. And somebody's going to win that with like an 11-5, and five, uh, right. it feels like. And then, of course, the NFC East is, is dog meat. So Man. the Saints are in prime position as long as they maintain this defensive consistency. The rest of the way, I feel like they have enough offense – to steal that one seed and it's so valuable now with Drew Brees coming right. back whenever he does to give him another week of not getting hit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the Saints the Saints want that number one seed. They want that bye week to start off the playoffs and 
I, and they're in a good position right now. They've set themselves up again. This is a best case scenario conversation for them. Like they've set themselves up to do, uh, you know, aside from the fact that their hall of fame starting quarterback is out with 11 broken ribs, but you know, when you are 11 rib fractures, excuse me, but I mean, they're in a good position here and it helps that Tampa Bay's next game is up against the Kansas city chiefs, create a little bit more distance within the, within the division here. Uh, and the way that the saints have been playing so far, they should be in a really good position. Sorry, my to, dog is scared. I'm just letting the folks oh. know my dog is scared of a thunderstorm. <laughs> So now she's jumping up on my lap because she's yes. running. Welcome in, pup. No problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> I support that. But yeah, I mean, they're in a really good position here to close out the NFC and put themselves in a good position to start off the playoffs. I mean, they get that first round by, that's a big deal for them. If they don't get it, it's fine. But I mean, it, it helps them more to have it than it hurts them not to have it. Don't get me wrong. But it's still a good, uh, it's still a really, really good opportunity for them to really set themselves up for the best a possible sort of success in the playoffs to get that first round by. Yeah, I think they absolutely can maintain whether it's Taysom or Jameis as long as the defense continues because I think they'll, they'll put up the points. And the yeah. schedule is in their favor. The schedule is just yeah. in their favor. Now, outside of, like I said, we're looking to Kansas City, and it may not mean anything by the time for either team right at that point um so we just don't i mean i just don't know uh, yeah. let's quickly look ahead to denver because i don't think there's a ton to say there mm-hmm. um it has been a difficult place for the saints to play but this ain't that broncos um right. drew lock i was really i think you saw that quote <laughs> where he said half the time when the ball leaves his hand he's like oh sh-, you know like, <laughs> that is not something That's that a quarterback not... should ever say yeah. in public I was like, dang, that's really not ideal. So, you know, the Saints are going to go into that game waiting for, all right, 50% of passes. <laughs> we got a chance. You know? <laughs> it is wild. Uh, but, yeah, man, like I, I think that when it comes down to this, you, you, you can't sleep on Denver at all. They have a lot of – they're young, but they have a lot of talent over on the offensive side. Uh, those receivers are no joke. They'll have KJ Hamler in the slot. That's going to be a really fun matchup to watch both him and CJ Garner Johnson, who by the way, is ready to go at the receiver that pulled Janoris Jenkins hair uh, the week after next, when they go up against the Falcons next week. So that'll be something to watch. But uh, I think that, you know, that's going to be uh, both skill position matchups are, are really, really good. Uh, really nice for the Saints. They're plus matchups for the Saints. The defensive line, Saints defensive line going up against, Green, uh, excuse me, uh, Denver's offensive line. Denver's offensive line got healthier. They got Graham Glasgow back, who was somebody that I really wanted for the Saints on the interior. This yeah, I like him a lot. Agency. Yeah, he's really solid. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see how David Onyemata's production, what that looks like this week, because he's played extremely well so far this season. And can he keep that up against Graham Glasgow? And then Denver also returned their starting right tackle as well. But that starting right tackle is a familiar face in DeMar Dotson, who used to be with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who Cam Jordan has had a lot of success against over his career. And so it'll be interesting to see if Cam Jordan can continue. I won't say continue his pace from last week with three sacks, but certainly continue his production because he's back on pace now for a double-digit sack season. And you want to see that happen consistently as opposed to just a couple of bursts here and there against the Falcons, right? Yeah. So I think that that'll be a big part. And then over on the offensive side, the Saints will have a nice advantage there because of their ability to run on the perimeter and the outside zone plays, those stretch plays, those Toss plays that we're used to seeing now, Alvin Kamara. I think those come back against a less athletic second level, but an ath- but a, a second level that can win between the tackles. So it'll be interesting to see the run game maybe look the opposite of what it did against the Falcons this past week. Um, let's move on to some fun topics uh, before yeah. we close. Sam Mills once again a Hall of Fame semifinalist. The guys at the top are easy. Yeah. Um, Peyton Manning's going in. 
you know, that that's done. Calvin Johnson's going in. And I, I, I had this conversation the other day. I, I think Calvin Johnson is the fourth best, the third or fourth best receiver in NFL history in my mind. It goes to me, it goes Jerry Rice, Randy Moss. And then it's either, and I throw out the fourth guy and I'll see what you think about this real quick. All right. Calvin Johnson. And then Sterling Sharp is my fourth best receiver. Thank of all time. you. Thank you for putting some shine on Sterling Sharp, man. Such a great combination of just physical, like physical profile and athletic profile and doing what he did in an offense that he was in as well. Uh, and, and also sharing some shine with, you know, other top, uh, other top guys as well. And Robert so, Brooks was on yeah. opposite of him at, for a time, but when he first yeah. got to green Bay, it was Sterling it was in him. a dream. <laughs> yeah, it was him. Um, and then, but the thing that was really incredible about Sterling was seeing him continue that production when those other names did start to show up, he didn't drop off man. he only got better. He only got if better. he hadn't gotten hurt, right? Like to me, Sterling Sharp is one of the people who should benefit from the Gail Sayers rule, right? Like you were so great, yeah. and if it, it doesn't matter how long your time was, you were that great. And he set a standard. He was the first guy to break the with the hundred. He was the uh, not the first guy to get a hundred catches. No. Was he the first? But it, I mean, like he was the he set the receptions record. I remember. Yes. Um, yeah. And then Herman Moore came along and broke it right. in a much different offense. Right. Um, but Sterling was the standard setter and he could run deep because I still, yep. in my mind, look, I'm a Detroit Lions guy from my childhood. And I still remember <laughs> oh, him no. running by uh, the Lions yep. in a playoff game and going deep. And he was physical, like you said, physically across the middle. He took mm-hmm. everything um, yep. and he ran some of the greatest routes I've ever yep. seen. Uh, there was legitimate conversation for a number of years as to whether or not he was better than Jerry Rice yeah. for those seasons. Not overall. Nobody's going to touch Jerry. No, no. Just but like, yeah. for about four or five years, the choice between Sterling Sharp and Jerry Rice was a hard one. Yeah. And so I think Calvin Johnson walks in. And then we got what um, we're talking about uh, Jared Allen. Yeah, he'll probably mm-hmm. get in because sack, num- sack numbers get you in. I think who's the fourth guy that I think is, is a lock this year, but Sam is on that list. And mm-hmm. I think it's time. Like it's, it's just time. Yeah. Sam, Sam belongs in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the production that he was able to put together, of course, not only in new Orleans, but he, you know, he had great years in Carolina as well. Uh, he's a fantastic player, man. And just a, an, an incredible communicator, emotional leader. Like he just did so much of everything. You know, when you think about the dome patrol days and him being a part of that unit he wasn't one of the guys that gets a lot of shine in terms of like Pat Swilling, Ricky Jackson, these guys that got into the backfield and got after quarterbacks, but he did everything to make that possible. He was a communicator. He was the, like I said, the emotional leader. He just did so much. And then you look at his time in, in Carolina where he was a little bit more of the, the, the top guy in that linebacking core. I'm really glad to see him get up there. I'm really I mean, he took to the Panthers, uh, again, an expansion again. team, to the yeah. NFC Championship right. in their third, was it their third year? Yeah. With Kerry yeah. Collins as the quarterback. <laughs> right. And remember, too, that he came in uh, uh, along with Mora from uh, the USFL. Yep. Too. Played so for the Philadelphia Stars. Yeah. So he came in with wear and tear, <laughs> you know, pro level wear and tear. You know what I mean? He wasn't one of those guys that, you know, young guys that just popped off off the charts from, you know, five, eight. Yeah. And five, he did eight. so at, a, yeah, a, at a stature that was unheard of for a physical guy you know, uh, at his position. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess the smallest middle linebacker I could think of around him is Zach Thomas, but Zach Thomas yeah. was not Sam he was Mills. More, no, no, no. He, Zach Thomas was more of those like cerebral coverage guys and everything that, you know, preceded, you know, that came early. Get a ton of tackles. You know? Yeah. Get a ton yeah. of tackles, but 
but Sam he was Mills not was a, calling was out people's a, plays for entire right. games. Steve <laughs> was an absolute thumper downhill too. He could fill a gap and not lose. You know, he can go, he can take on your best offensive lineman and still win to get after a run stop. Like he was just incredible. Goal Tenacious. line. I mean, like I saw oh, Stamps stuff so many people at the goal line. <laughs> right. It was insane. Right. Um, and remember too, like I, I have to point this out to people all the time. That group only played with two other defenders who made one Pro Bowl. Right. While they were at their peak. Two that made one Pro Bowl. I think Dave Waymer got one or mm-hmm. Toy Cook. And then I, I think Frank Warren Toy was Cook. the other on the inside. They yeah. got one one year. But, it, yeah, that just – Sam belongs. That's my thought. Yeah. He belongs. Yeah, I agree. The other thing is we got our question from our boy, Raymond Parsons. <laughs> Is Ricky Jackson the greatest Saints player of all time? I'm going to let you go first on this one. I, I have always been a proponent of, uh, of yes. And I know that, that that probably drops me into some majority of people and everything like that, and that's fine. But I, I do believe so. I mean, you look at his numbers and just what he was able to do as, as a present, you know, as, as a, uh, a present Hall of Fame guy. I mean, he's just somebody that he's what your, your leader in the franchise in terms of sacks. Games he's your leader played. in the franchise and games played. Yeah, I believe he's your leader in franchise for forced fumbles as he's well. The, he's the, which, for a while, he was the NFL record holder right, for very forced fumbles and fumbles recovered. Yeah, and so he's just been somebody that was absolutely – and you can see, like, one of the things that you miss right now from the Saints defense is, again, eight sacks in this last game, never getting the ball on the ground. That is a game-changing or game-sealing first or second down – you're done. You know, that is, a, that's a drive finisher right off the bat. It's one of the things that I like most about Marcus Davenport is his ability to force those fumbles with impact. But Ricky Jackson, uh, you look at LT, you look at these guys that were difference makers from their position as edge rushers. And it came down to their ability to be able to get after the quarterback and get the ball, get the ball back to their offense. And so I do, I mean, I do think that he is the best saint of all time. Um, maybe some people might want to roll with Drew Brees, perhaps. But I mean, when you talk about just somebody that was with this team from day one to day none, like and, and did what he did, I, I, I lean, I lean Ricky Jackson. I'm a Ricky guy too. Yeah. Um, I firmly believe that during the '80s, the only other linebacker that was better than him was Lawrence Taylor. That was it. Um, Ricky was a three-down linebacker in the truest sense of the word. Um, he was a warrior. He set the tone mm-hmm. and. You know, he was the guy – he's still top 20 all-time in sacks when yep. the sack – and you have to – I always quantify this, too, is because the dropbacks were so much fewer. Right. You know, you had teams throwing 25 times a game, not 40 yeah. times a game. Right. So, the opportunities weren't there. And, and for him to, to be out there, he was just as stout against the run as he was against the pass. Mm-hmm. He could cover in space. And he was as feared a hitter as there was in the NFL. Like I said, he, he, the strip the strip sack was was something that he perfected. Right. Um, and at his physical, his dimensions did not match the no. guys that you think of as edge rushers. <laughs> right. He didn't match that. He didn't look like no. you know Pat Swilling looked like a racer. You know what I mean? Right. Lawrence Taylor was built like a racer. Mm-hmm. Ricky wasn't built like that. Ricky is built mm-hmm. like a, a a brick house. And, right. and, and still had that speed and power. And I think the biggest thing is, without Ricky, none of this now is possible. Mm-mm. He's the first draft pick that the Saints made that was transformational. Yep. Ricky made the Superdome. 
a place yep. that people didn't want to come. And they added the other pieces around him. That mm-hmm. defense was built around him. Yep. And you add in the swelling, you add in the Vaughn Johnson, you add in the Sam Mills. But Ricky was a pro bowler before they got there. And then when the Dome Patrol broke up, he was the last one standing. Yep. He was still there um, up until they, you know, he went to the 49ers. Right. And I just, to me, there's no one who had the, the that level. I mean, Drew Brees has been consistent for 15 years, and there's nothing that's right. going to take away from that. But as we go forward, outside of his accuracy record, every one of those other marks is going to get buried as we right. go forward in time. And that's that's not against him. It's just the way the no, game is the now. Game. And I think Ricky, compared to his peers at the time, there's a further gap between him and the other linebacking peers than there is between Drew and, say, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Right. You know, those guys, he's in that cluster, but he's not, you're not going to put Drew above them historically. That's right. going to always be the problem for Drew. And I think that the Saints, there's never going to be anybody quite like Ricky. They just, mm-hmm. just never. And they'll consistently be searching for it, too, is the thing. Like what Ricky was on the field, every team in the NFL still searches for it to this day. What Drew Brees is right now with the trend of quarterbacking in the NFL, that's not what teams are looking for anymore. And again, that's, a, that's no disrespect to Drew Brees, but there, you know, you're going to be looking for Ricky Jackson's for the rest of time in the NFL. You might be looking more in the next couple of years towards, I mean, you're seeing it now to where what's the possibility of Taysom Hill taking over Drew Brees and how exciting it is to have somebody that has that mobile quarterback. You, know, you look at the mobile quarterback and the evolution of the mobile quarterback in the NFL, thanks to the, the, the quarterbacks that have been, been coming in here recently that changes what you look for across the NFL. Nothing's ever going to change any team ever looking for a guy like Ricky Jackson. You always be looking for that. And the saints were lucky enough to have him, man. And I, I, yeah, I agree. I think he's the greatest saint of all time. And I'm still waiting. Like there's, I will say that right now, who you know, there've been a lot of bad guys who've worn the 57 over the years. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm okay with who, you know, Right now, the 56, I look around, 56 is cool. I'm good with DeMario wearing the 56. Um, You know, but I know the Saints don't do it, but there's no reason in hell that somebody should be allowed to wear 57. There's no reason in hell that somebody should be allowed to wear Willie 77. If you're in the Hall of Fame, to me, that's that right there takes away the opportunity for other people to wear your jersey. Yeah, yeah. If you're not going to formally retire it, then it's just an understanding. Yeah. Just, just like nobody's gonna wear a nine. Nobody's nobody, gonna wear nobody. nine ever again. And nobody nobody's worn that. eight. Right. No one has worn eight since Archie Manning retired. And Archie, the Saints have had more wins in the last three years than Archie had in his career. Yep. I'm saying, like, let's be real here. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they nobody's wearing number eight. And you talk about a dude with career losing record and threw more interceptions and touchdowns, and is most famous for getting his ass whooped. And I'm, Aaron I mean, Brooks is a better quarterback. Aaron Brooks was a better quarterback. Jim Everett put up better numbers. You know what I'm saying? Like Jim Everett, and, man. Yeah, absolutely. And you can say all you want about what the talent was. I think it's just the mythology. It's a mythology. And, and right. to me, Ricky is, is number one. It's just That's the yeah. way it's going to be for me. And I get the breeze people. I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to argue with people on that. That's fine. Everybody's entitled yeah, to it. But fine. in my it's house, okay. in my house is Ricky. <laughs> it's a Ricky house. These are Ricky houses.
Yep. Uh, man, again, I think we gave the folks a lot today. Um, I'm excited, looking forward to Sunday because, again, we need more of a bigger size for Taysom, and it'll be another opportunity. And I think it's a, a good a good team for him to match up against, a team that's middle of the pack defensively. You're still going to have the running game to lean on. And we'll see what mm-hmm. they add, if there are wrinkles that they add this week, and I'm sure there will be. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this matchup, and um, I'm just excited to see what we learn next about this team, whether it be the defense or Taysom Hill or, or what have you. I mean, it's, this is a very exciting time for this franchise right now because they're learning about themselves right now, but they're potentially learning about themselves for, for the future too. And so because you're going to see a lot of those defensive pieces and what this defense wants to look like returning next season. So it's a lot of good stuff. So, my brother, please tell folks what you do have coming the rest of this week. I know you, you have your usual lineups of your cross uh, pods with our mm-hmm. opponent and whatnot. So give the folks the quick rundown. Yeah, absolutely. So we released our usual crossover Thursday episodes. We released that one today. So myself and Cody Roark, who I do the Sunday morning show with over at Locked On, uh, he's the host of Locked On Broncos. Just a fantastic conversation. Honestly, I think it's one of the best crossovers that I've done so far. Uh, and, you know, Cody and I talk every week. So the chemistry is there and, you know, it's sim- not similar to this, but you know what I mean? Like we talk every week, so we have a rapport. Uh, and over at Canal Street Chronicles, just put out a piece this morning, Wednesday morning about Taysom Hill and both the similarities in terms of what, how he maintain the Saints offense, but also how he augmented it and how uh, it was built around him. I have another piece coming out a little bit more detail about those numbers that I threw out about Quan Alexander, about his immediate impact, another breakdown of the defensive line. A lot of good stuff coming up, man. But, you know, I'll take tomorrow off to get some rest uh, and everything. But got a lot of stuff coming up. And you can follow it all over at Ross Jackson Nola on Twitter and over at Canal Street Chronicles, Locked on Saints, of course. And, of course, every Wednesday right here at the Don't Patrol It Hard to Paint. And thank you so much. I hope you and the, uh, the wife and the dog have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Thank and you, uh, I'll, be, I'll be resting as well. And then yeah, we get bro. back to the grind on Friday. Right back at it. Right back at it. Same to you and yours, man. Always a pleasure to be here with you, my brother. I appreciate you. Absolutely. So for Ross Jackson, I am David Grubb, and this has been uh, Hard in the Paint. Please check uh, out my website, www.hitpwithdg.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at DMGrubb and the same on Instagram. Y'all have a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll be back on Friday as well. Peace out.